It has stood the test of time. God's book, the Bible, still relevant in today's complex world. It is written, sharing messages of hope around the world. The purpose of our last two shows was to make a determination on whether God exists. If God does not exist, then a whole range of questions related to his existence can simply disappear. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die without any judgment or accountability. Yet, knowing that God does indeed exist, how then are we to reconcile his existence with the seemingly contradictory opinions about him provided by philosophers and the world's major religions. For instance, we have already made at least two assumptions through how we phrased the question. The first is, should we refer to God in masculine terms such as Father? Or is Divine Mother more appropriate? Or should we refer to God through something a little more ambiguous such as our Heavenly Parent? Second, is it possible that what may seem to us as contradictory expressions about God by the major philosophies and religions of the world are only apparently contradictory? On the other hand, perhaps they are contradictory expressions that are ultimately reconciled into the one God. In other words, perhaps these are just different paths to the same place. Is God a personal being or is he an impersonal force? Does God exist in some timeless and spaceless realm as some early Christian church fathers taught, thereby making it impossible for him to be acted upon or to enter into a relationship with us? Or is God freely able, about to providentially step into our world and enter into a relationship with us without at the same time compromising his divinity? Is God essentially distinct from the stuff that makes up the universe? Or is he, through the process of evolution, coming to an awareness of himself as was taught by the 19th century philosopher Hegel and popularized by films such as Matrix and Lucy? Furthermore, in our search for answers, are we doomed to subjective explanations that arise from our own particular faith communities? Or can we apply an objective standard to these questions regardless of whether we belong to any faith community at all? Our purpose in this presentation is much broader than providing an answer to all of the specific questions that we just recently raised. Instead, our purpose is, first of all, to seek for an objective standard that we can apply to the major philosophies and religions of the world so that we can evaluate whether their claims to authoritatively reveal God are in fact true. Before we begin to tackle this daunting task, however, let's take a few moments to review the methods we used to analyze that question in our previous shows on the existence of God. 
Now, if you missed any of those shows, you can go to our YouTube channel, www.youtube.com forward slash IIW Canada, and there you can watch any of our archived programs. Now, as we studied over the past two weeks, we discovered that although the founders of modern science, such as Kepler, Galileo, Boyle, Pascal, Linné, and Newton, they all believed in God. However, many scientists after Charles Darwin abandoned the notion that the creator God is the cause of the universe. We also learned that knowledge that is derived from the senses, reason, intuition, feeling, experience, history, and from the experts, they all constitute an interpretation of truth and nature. So we can then draw two conclusions from this. First, since knowledge from these sources constitutes an interpretation of the facts, then it's obvious that these sources of knowledge have a high probability of error regarding the question of God's existence. Since that is the case, then they are unreliable in making a solid determination regarding the existence of God. The second conclusion that we can draw from the reality that knowledge is interpretation is that we must look for a method whose probability of error is so incredibly minute that it will decidedly place the problem of God's existence beyond question. We discovered that when we analyze the wonders of nature in the universe, the incredibly small probabilities of random chance cry out for an explanation of which there are only two, chance and blind natural processes on the one hand and design that points to God on the other. However, what seems like an unavoidable conclusion is that both sides believe in miracles. In light of probabilities such as 10 to the 40th power, 10 to the 60th power, 10 to the 120th power, 10 to the 123rd power, 10 to the 190th power, and the huge number of 10 to the 40,000th power, and even greater, 10 to the 5 billionth power, they all demonstrate that anyone who still believes in random chance as an explanation for the universe still believes in miracles. The difference between the two sides resides in the fact that one believes that God is responsible for the miracle and the other believes that nature is responsible. But either way, a miracle has indeed taken place. I happen to agree with scientist Fred Hoyle, who, by the way, rejects the idea of God. Now that I don't agree with with him. But I agree with his statement when he states that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the laws of nature and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about. This is why I believe that it is reasonable to say that God exists and that he is the creator of all things. Now, it is important to note that there is a source of knowledge that we did not discuss in our previous two shows. 
And that is knowledge that comes to us from sources that claim to be authoritative and inspired. How shall we test their claims? Furthermore, do we believe our particular religion or philosophy because it is true? Or is it true because we believe it? Before we answer these questions, I believe it is also important that we consider various standards of test that will not work. For instance, shall we decide these questions of authority on the basis of miracles and answered prayers? On the basis of wise sayings? Or what about literary style and beauty? The problem with these kinds of criteria is that you're going to have people from all the major religions claiming that since God answered my prayers or did something miraculous for me, this therefore means that their philosophy, religion, or sacred writings that they adhere to must indeed be supernatural and thus authoritative. Each religious or philosophical group will also claim that their own wise sayings and their own literary style and beauty of their writings is superior to the rest. It's also pointless to base our analysis on how long a particular idea, religion, or sacred writing has existed, or even on the number of people that subscribe to it. These are all subjective criteria that will not work. In other words, anyone who sets up these criteria to settle the issues comes very close to saying that my religion is true because I believe it. What we need to do is construct a test that only God can pass and that we can easily apply to any who claim that their religious and philosophical writings constitute the one and only standard. Then all claims must be measured by that very standard. When we applied probability theory to some of the laws of nature, we discovered that the most reasonable explanation for the incredibly small probabilities is that the universe is designed by an incredibly powerful creator. It's almost as if the universe has invited us to test and examine it. This means that probability constitutes an objective standard that inquirers can easily apply to the question of God's existence. What I would propose is that we first examine some of the major philosophies and religions of the world in order to evaluate two things. First is whether they invite an inquirer to evaluate their claims to authority or inspiration or do they just force us to blindly accept their claims? Second, if they invite inquirers to examine and test their claims, then we can apply probability theory to their claim to inspiration. The logic goes like this. If probability clearly points to the existence of God, then let's see if probability also settles the issue of authority and inspiration. And just before we examine what the founders of the major religions taught, 
let's draw a little sketch of the major religious groups in the world today. According to a 2010 demographic study that was based on more than 2,500 censuses, surveys, and population registers, the size of the major religious groups in the world are as follows. 31.5% claim to be Christians, 23.2% Muslim, 16.3% are unaffiliated, 15% are Hindus, 7.1% are Buddhists, 5.9% are classified as folk religionists. That includes African traditional religions, Chinese folk religions, Native American religions, and Australian Aboriginal religions. 0.8% are made up of other religions, such as the Baha'i faith, Jainism, Sikhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Tenrikyo, Wicca, and Zoroastrianism, just to name a few. Also, 0.2% of the global population are Jews. Now, in Canada, according to the 2011 National Household Survey, 39% identified themselves as Roman Catholic, 27% as Protestant, 24% as claiming no religious affiliation, and the remaining 11% include Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Now, some have recently asserted that all of these religious and philosophical ideas not only lead to the one true God, but also that they are all of equal value. However, there are two major problems with this. The first is related to probability. When we investigate the laws of physics, there is virtually no room for error, which essentially means that there is only one way in which the laws of physics are brought together to provide for and sustain life. Thus, there are not many ways when it comes to sustaining life, life in this universe. There's only one way. The question must then be asked, why would God make only one way for things to work in the natural world, but then use many contradictory ways that somehow ultimately resolve and lead to the one God in the spiritual life? It is much more reasonable to assert that the consistency in the laws of physics that point to only one answer must also be reflected in spiritual laws, which should do the same. Also, in order to claim that all religious statements are of equal value, we must have some objective standard to measure whether they are indeed equal or not. Thus, it's problematic to state that all religions are of equal value without providing a way to test if that is true. The second problem refers to what the religious writings claim. When we examine the major religions of the world, we do not find them saying that their particular brand of religion is just one of many ways in which inquirers might receive the truth. Let's take Hinduism, for example. In the introduction to the Bhagavad Gita, it states, let there be one scripture for the whole world, Bhagavad Gita. Let there be by one God for the whole world, Shri Krishna, one hymn, one mantra, one prayer, the chanting of his name. While the Quran states, 
Allah. There is no God but he, the living, the self-subsisting, supporter of all. His are all things in the heavens and on earth. His throne doth extend over the earth. He is the most high, the supreme. But the Buddhist scriptures declare, this Lord is truly the Arat, fully enlightened, perfect in his knowledge and conduct, well gone, world knower, unsurpassed, leader of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and men, the Buddha, the Lord. Judaism states, for thus saith the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth. I am the Lord and there is no other. And Christianity speaks of Jesus in the following way. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In fact, Jesus himself also stated these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thus, it is difficult to escape the conclusion that the writings of the world's major religions claim that they constitute the one standard by which all others must be judged. Since that is the case, then let's see if their writings invite inquirers to analyze their claims. Let's also see if we can use probability theory in order to evaluate whether their claims have any objective authority. In the preface to the Bhagavad Gita, it states, Lord Krishna first spoke Bhagavad Gita to the sun god some hundreds of millions of years ago. Moreover, as Dr. Sabud Pandit points out, it was lost and then repeated at the battle of Kurukshetra about 50 centuries ago. This certainly makes it impossible for an inquirer to try to verify. As a result, the Bhagavad Gita itself states, we have to accept it as it is. Otherwise, there is not point in trying to understand the Bhagavad Gita and its speaker, Lord Krishna. The Buddhist writings declare that absolute truth is unconditional, undeterminate, and beyond thought and word. Now, if absolute truth is undeterminate and beyond thought and word, then just like Hinduism, its claims are beyond inquiry and verification. The Quran claims to be unique among all classifications of literature. It declares, if men combined to produce a book akin to this Quran, they would surely fail to produce its like, though they helped one another as best they could. In other places, the challenge is to produce either one chapter or ten chapters like the Quran. Here indeed is a challenge. Yet, as Dr. Pondit has perceptively noted, there are serious problems with this challenge. First, the challenge did not state what feature was to be equaled, whether it was prose or poetry or rhythm or diction or philosophy or beliefs about God. 
Second, it did not define the method of comparison. How then would an inquirer decide whether the Quran was better, equal, or worse? Third, who would be the final judge regarding the comparison? Would it be an imam, a Muslim council, a neutral body, an international committee, or the individual himself? Fourth, to the Orthodox Muslim, Arabic is the divine language of communication and the Quran is considered authentic only in that language. Hence, to equal the Quran, the writings should be only in the Arabic language. If millions of Muslims who don't know one sentence of literary Arabic are not able to test to accept the challenge, then how can the rest of the world accept the challenge? Dr. Pondit, scholar of world religions, concludes, a subjective, nebulous challenge applicable to only a narrow segment of the world's population is not a real challenge. And so now we turn to the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, to see if they invite the inquirer to test their claim to inspiration and to see if we can apply what we have learned from probability theory. In the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 to 23. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Here we find Isaiah stating that the test of divinity is the ability to successfully predict what is to come. This is the test that only God can pass. Therefore, if extremely small probabilities point to God's existence, then on the same basis, the ability to foretell specific events points decisively to the Old and New Testament scriptures as the standard that all other writings must be measured against. Let's notice what Jesus himself says in John 13, and verse 19, he declares these words. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Jesus makes it clear that he does not expect his followers to simply accept his claims. Instead, he realizes that claims can only be genuine if they can pass the test of fulfilling the smallest of probabilities. There seems to be nothing in the Hindu, Buddhist, or Islamic scriptures to which we can apply probability as we did with the existence of God. Of all the writings of the major world religions, it is only the Old and New Testament scriptures which lay down what is the ultimate challenge in the form of predictive prophecy, which can be analyzed by probability. Therefore, 
if the Old and New Testament scriptures not only lay down the challenge, but also provide evidence to substantiate the challenge, then the issue of authority is settled. Is the Bible reliable? Can it be trusted? Will it pass the test? I invite you to not miss one show on this journey of inquiry and discovery. Lord, help us on this journey of inquiry to discover the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that saying, sweets for the sweet? Well, I've got a fabulously easy, totally delicious, low calorie, and of course, highly nutritious dessert to show you. It's a better than ice cream, frozen banana ice dream. It's so good. If you're an ice cream lover, you must try this. Simply peel some ripe bananas, and they should have spots on them because they're sweeter then. Cut the bananas into chunks, Freeze them overnight, then blend them in your blender or food processor until they're smooth and creamy. It's that simple. Let me show you. I've got some frozen banana in here already. I'm just going to add a little bit more. Put the cover on my Vitamix blender here. And let's give this a whirl. It's looking good. I didn't get the whole thing, but I'm going to leave it at that for now. And it's really easy to jazz it up a little bit if you want to. You can blend in some nut butter to give it a richer taste, a little nut milk. And I had to do that for this one because it wasn't doing it so well. So I just put a little bit of nut milk so it would move. You could add some vanilla extract, some carob chips, or other frozen or fresh fruit. And then the consistency of it is just like ice cream. Look at that. It stays just like ice cream, and so you could just put some in your bowl. In fact, let me just dish this out. It is so good, and it's so good for you. Totally delicious. Instead of all the fat and processed sugar in regular ice cream, you're going to get all the goodness of the banana. It'll be a low-fat, low-calorie, naturally sweet, deliciously healthy dessert that's got great potassium, some vitamin C, fiber, uh, vitamin B6, and some magnesium. You're not going to get any of that in regular ice cream. Now, you'll want to use a powerful blender for this recipe. As you saw, it might be difficult sometimes to get it nice and creamy, but the Vitamix blender will do that. And you see the consistency of it it's just like ice cream and it is so delicious to find out more about Vitamix blenders you can go to Vitamix.com enjoy this natural goodness and I'll see you next time Friend, on this journey of inquiry, I want to offer you the Discover Bible Guides that will help you discover about God and His existence. Here's the information you need for today's offer. To request today's offer, just log on to www.itiswrittencanada.ca. 
That's www.itiswrittencanada.ca. For Canadian viewers, the offer will be sent free and postage paid. For viewers outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you prefer, you may call toll-free at 1-888-CALL-IIW. Or if you wish, you may write to us at It Is Written, Box 2010, Oshawa, Ontario, L1H7V4. Thank you so much for watching. Join us again next week. Until then, remember, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God.